0: Welcome to the Bookblast podcast and our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy. We are showcasing a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses, along with a special guest feature. Today I'm interviewing Michael Schmidt, one of the three original founders of Carcanet Press, now in its sixth decade. Carcanet is a leading publisher of modern and classic poetry in all the Englishes now spoken and written and in translation. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. Good afternoon, Michael. Thank you for coming to be interviewed. Tell us a bit about your background. You were born in Mexico. How did you end up in Manchester.
1: Uh, born in Mexico in 1947, uh, from a father who was born in 1892. So I feel very, very, I have a very long route going into the 19th century. Um, I was educated in Mexico and in the United States. I went to Oxford, uh, having dropped out of Harvard. And uh, when I was at Oxford, I met uh, Professor Brian Cox, who was professor of English here in Manchester. We became friendly. Uh, he created a writer-in-residence uh, post for me and I came up to mm. Manchester to teach. And I've been at Manchester oh. or in Manchester on and off ever since.
0: writer residence so you were t- teaching literature, poetry?
1: Teaching, teaching literature uh, and uh, later on creating the first creative writing uh, program here at Manchester. Um, with with Richard Francis, the novelist, uh, he and I set up the first writing program. It, 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 things took off from there. Yeah, but I, the reason I think Brian Cox wanted to bring me to Manchester was that already at Oxford, uh, in 1969, I had set up um, with friends Carcanet Press, and Carcanet uh, was already, even from its very first uh, steps, was really quite um, successful. People noticed it. We we had uh, quite a lot of press, as it were, and and uh, our books were sold quite widely in what was then the much more open book trade than it is now.
0: You, you founded carconet with Peter Jones and Gareth Reeves, working from a farmhouse kitchen table. Tell us a bit about each decade.
1: The kitchen table is a little bit of an exaggeration. It was much more a living room table uh, with small oh, kitchen well. off it. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And it, it was it, it was an old farmhouse in a little village called South Hinksey, a very uh, a lovely little village uh, outside Oxford. Um, in our very first incarnation, we, we ran a magazine called Carcanet, and uh, I wanted to wind the magazine up uh, because I thought I was going off to become a banker. And so, as a last as a last uh, sort of throw of the dice, we published seven little pamphlets, and these pamphlets got wonderful reviews in the Times and the TLS and everywhere else. And so. We decided we'd do a couple of books and then we decided to do some more books and some more books and so it, it began really as a kind of elegy uh, a, a final a final as i say throw of the dice and it ended up as a as a publishing house which always been chasing the next the next uh, ending <laughs> <laughs> I know. and what, what was very nice was that yeah. quite early on uh, because i was working with the poetry society in oxford i met really people who were incredibly helpful and, and uh, supportive and have remained so down the years. Uh, one was Tony Rudolph, mm. uh, who you probably know from the Menard Press, another publisher of translations. Of yes. and, mm, yeah. and Tony introduced me to a number of people who were crucial in the growth of Carconet. The most important one earlier on for translation purposes was uh, Daniel Weisport. <clears throat> Daniel and Ted Hughes had set up the uh, Modern Poetry in Translation, which is still going. Uh, with
0: ISMPT. yes, yes, right. yes,
1: yes. And uh, Danny knew Russian, obviously knew French, and so on, and, uh, and so did Tony. Uh, the result was that I had an immediate entree to contemporary Russian literature right. uh, through okay. them. And uh, uh, Ted Hughes was working on Popeye and Pilinsky and so on. We had the great international poetry festivals at the time. And so Carponet was in a position to take on some of the, really the great writers of contemporary Europe, um, mm-hmm. Eastern and Western Europe. So that was very exciting. Mm. And having having people who were willing to as it were nurture me and uh, instruct me in what to do, and were and were very was, good. Was yeah. speculated. They weren't making use of me really; they were making use of Carcanet to uh, to expand our English readership. Really, we set up our creative writing program at Manchester. Um, That's right. not really in the expectation that we were going to recruit writers. On the contrary, we were right. we were troubled, I think, by the growth of theory. And the kind of the, pre- ah, preva- yes. the, the increasing of pre- prevalence of theory, the sense of how language is put together, and, and to do the close reading that he that Richard had done mm. at uh, Cambridge and I done it at Oxford, mm. and to work on their own work. And so we had no expectations of our writers as writers, but almost all of them did much much better as readers. Uh, and it yeah. was this, it was learning learning about writing in order to improve your reading. I don't want people to be scholars certainly, yes. but I would love them to be readers and to read deeply. Yeah.
0: The aim of the course is to actually to improve your reading and understanding. And
1: yes, I think nowadays there can be there can be. Uh, else it says uh, I, I don't want to be I don't want to read too much because it'll get in the way of my originality. Well, <laughs> it doesn't work. No.
0: <laughs> On the contrary, as we know, the more you read, the more I mean, reading is how you learn. So, but you, you yourself, publishing a part, you yourself are a poet, a scholar, a critic, a translator. Uh, and you've published several collections of your own poems and a novel. So how has that proved beneficial to your work as a publisher? In a way, it's a sort of like a two-way street. How has that helped?
1: Yes, I think um, I can't imagine life otherwise. I can't imagine, I mean, I, I love reading and I love poetry more than more than almost anything else. But I can't imagine... Having uh, had a career in which I didn't do all those things, uh, they all they all join mm-hmm. up one way or another. Yeah. If, but I, I mean, I'm bilingual. Obviously, I learned Spanish first and learned English second. So
0: you translate, um, I assume, obviously from...
1: from from Spanish into English, and I yeah. the other way, but less successfully. Right. Um, but also, uh, you know, we, we, I read Latin at school and learned to translate some from Latin. And uh, mm-hmm. I think when you want to understand a poem, uh, the best thing you can do with it is to translate. First of all, read it aloud, as as Deborah Graham said. And, Translate and see what you can do.
0: Consistently passionate advocate of fine writing and translation throughout your career. What, in your view, makes a good translation and what makes it last? Uh,
1: I think a good translation has to stand apart from the thing it's translating. I think you can't, I think the translations that try and get too close are almost always distorted by the original language. And I think if you're translating into another language, you have to respect the the sinews of that language, rather than try and bend them around, the uh, 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 contort right. them around another. So when you take, say, Pope translating Homer, he's translating Homer into couplets, he's translating him into the idiom that he is most most uh, capable of, most brilliant in, and he's finding solutions that, uh, that work for the English that he writes in. Uh, I, I always like the sense that if a phrase in, say, Spanish is idiomatic in Spanish, an equivalent idiomatic phrase should be found in English, not that you should, as it were, copy the idiomaticism of, of the Spanish.
0: Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um,
1: sure. So, so, And this is a yeah. sense of keeping a distance. You're in a dialogue in your language with the original language. Um, and so there are there are the close up translations and some of them like like uh, the experimental translations that Christopher Middleton did, Middleton did of, of Goethe are very interesting, where he preserves the word order because he says that the order in which the, 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 the words come to you is the order in which the sense comes to you in German. Uh, it's totally alien to to English, of course, but it makes you understand all the time that you're reading really a translation. He did, in a sense, to, to prove a point. And a, a lot of experimental translations are a lot of fun because they try and disrupt English in the direction of the original, but they don't wow. as it were out to in a kind of uh, slavish way. They're they're doing something inventive with English. But it as, needs, it,
0: but that's good. But it needs to work because if you hear. The original language behind the translation, it, you don't want it to sound stilted, but on the other hand, certainly you can play games. Yes. There's that argument of how far do you translate and localise it into English or
1: mm.
0: not. And as you say, experimental, that's something else. But experimental, though, wouldn't sound stilted, for example.
1: Well, does. experimental can sound very stilted, but in a very creative way. In a creative We're,
0: way, I'm saying, a bad translation sounded stilted, and it's like somebody's wearing clogs on a wooden floor. That's not mm. right. Whereas, some it's like oh, modern jazz yeah. or something.
1: The original hasn't come across, I think, in a bad translation. Whereas in a good translation, even if uh, even if you're not very close to the original, you're, you're close. You're close to something. They, they, we published um, a couple of years ago a, a book by um, Philip Terry called Dictator, which was a a version of the Gilgamesh epic, you know, me and my my Gilgamesh fixation,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and he's he's in a sense invented a way of doing it which is totally un uh, and and actually respects a lot of the prosodic principles or what we assume to be the prosodic principles of of the Assyrian languages. Uh, and he does it with such tact, and it's very very it's very very funny. It's also very moving. It's but uh, I mean, you have to read it aloud. It compels you to read it aloud.
0: But how, now you say it's very un-English. What constitutes being un-English in that instance?
1: Well, the word order is not is not natural. He actually puts, uh, as it were, he puts um, breaks like like bars in music, every two syllables. So there's a, a physical. So your eyes is, is sort of having to jump over these these hurdles all the time, or, or is confined oh. within the hurdles. Mm-hmm. Each uh, each line is uh, consists of a number of these these quite demarcated feet, and the language doesn't flow. Um, he's using what he calls globish, which is a language of a very limited diction, and he's having to invent globish. It's kind of universal English, which is a very I, reduced, uh, a reduced okay. diction. Uh, and you have to invent ways of saying things that where the word itself does not exist. It's, it's a wonderfully playful thing to do.
0: Yes, so why why then does literary translation have an important role to play in our changing world? And how does it, it help us increase our empathic capacities
1: I wonder well I wonder if it does I, I mean empathy is one of the things that I that I distrust in poetry when you when you when you have the uh, when you have the the reporter nowadays saying mm-hmm. you know your your cat has died how do you feel about that and you have to get the feeling emp- this notion of empathy mm-hmm. it seems to be pretty obvious the cat has died and somebody's disturbed you know, that, to bring forward the tears is is uh, <laughs> I I think they must get points on the BBC for making people cry or or eliciting tears. Um, But uh, (laughs) I I think what translation, to be quite frank with you, translation interests me most for what it does for the translator and the translator's language and what it does for other writers' language and other serious readers' language.
0: Readers opening up their minds or ways of Well,
1: what opens up your mind with poetry is the language of the poem and a good translation gets some of those aspects of the language and opens up the mind with those aspects of the language. Um, I don't know, uh, when you read, say, Geoffrey Hill's uh, Pentecost Castle, he is the only poet in English, I think, who's ever got the actual feel of López de Vega's um, stanza form. And if you read, if you read Hill's uh, Pentecost Castle, there are moments at which you could be reading golden age Spanish lyric poetry. And that's something wonderful, that has brought you something that you would not have otherwise. The poem is a very passionate poem, it's about religion, it's about uh, love. And those, those are obviously empathic things, but what you're getting from the poem as well as those things, which most poems give you one way or another, is this new resource for your ears, you hear in a different way. And I think that translation, the translation that I most admire is translation that makes you hear differently. Not necessarily mm-hmm. feel differently. Hearing differently can entail feeling differently, of course, but it's, yeah. the, the object is not a, empathy so much as um, a language resource that you're gaining from it. Mm-hmm. It sounds very cold, but it, it isn't. I mean, if you love poetry, the noise poems make is what you love.
0: Uh, publishing poetry is a tricky business. Your list comprises collections by established English language poets, new editions of work by deceased writers, and newcomers on the scene. So tell us about five of your lead titles in translation and what makes each one quite so special.
1: You have a remarkable list. Well, um, I suppose the very first major translation we published was by Daniel Vysport himself, a translation of the poems of Natalia Gorbanevskaya. She was a a Russian dissident poet who was held in a Soviet mental hospital. We published the poems, we published a transcript of her trial, we published uh, an Assessment of the Trial and of the Poems by a, a, a wonderful British um, psychoanalyst. That book had a tremendous impact, I think, on both on us, because it was very, very widely reviewed and, and very successful and much talked about, yeah, okay. But also on her, I believe it led to her being released from prison. So that was, that was the first book. And the translations, some of them are extraordinarily beautiful. It was a time in which we were publishing other Russian translations. So there were, there were uh, Jeffrey Thurley's translations of the Russian poet Yasin, which I still regard as one of our most beautiful books um, of okay. translations. But I think he disowned them and, uh, and his family disowned him or something. But shortly after that, we also published um, translations of Mayakovsky by Edwin Morgan. Edwin Morgan took Mayakovsky and he translated him, not into English, but into, not into standard English, but into Scots. It, it's very, very hard to read. It's wonderful to read them aloud if you can if you can manage it. And I remember uh, C.P. Snow reviewing them in the Financial Times and saying, I find Professor Morgan's translations of the Russian uh, almost as difficult as the Russian originals. Or no, marginally more than the, the Russian originals, I think he said.
0: Right. So those are, there are,
1: there are, there are some of the books we published. Uh, later on, uh, in fact, about, I think, three or four years ago, we published um, James Womack's translations of Mayakovsky in a book called oh. Mayakovsky. And right. they are okay. so spirited, and they, they do exactly what I was trying to say at the beginning. They uh, they stand back from the Mayakovsky and give you equivalences which are as inventive or, or, or have an inventiveness uh, almost as, as vital as Mayakovsky's sort of futurist um, uh, uh And so uh, that was one of our, I think, one of our finest uh, translations as well.
0: But you published some wonderful French, but they're dead French, dead French poets. You have rather a good line in...
1: Which is Bonfoy, 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 the poet's poetry and his prose. We've done a lot, we did Baudelaire, we've done Corbiere, we've done done a, a vast range of them, yes. But I think my, 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 I think our strongest suit has almost always been Russian. Um, yes. Okay.
0: So do, now do the broadsheets do justice? Or are poetry venues and literary festivals and magazines the main way of getting poets and their poetry out to readers?
1: Historically, the broadsheets have been very helpful. The Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian almost always had their their resident poetry reviewer, as did The Listener, The New Statesman, mm-hmm. and The Spectator, and so on. And I uh, at the time that we started, of course, there was much less poetry being published, much less poetry right. being published. So The Guardian would, would review probably a good half of the bu- books that were published. Um, now, of course, that's impossible because there are thousands of books published each year. And I think one of the reasons that uh, the broadsheets seem to be less responsive is that there's simply so much. In the old days, of course, the, the broadsheets also had a resident poetry, poetry reviewers. So the Times had Robert Nye, Martin Dodsworth did The Guardian, and so on. And now that doesn't happen so often. Mm-hmm. Nowadays you have uh, some very good younger critics writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the broadsheets that are most honoring poetry nowadays are The Guardian obviously, which yeah. has quite a regular uh, eye towards towards poetry. The Telegraph, which is very good. The Financial Times does quite a bit of poetry. The Times, mm-hmm. possibly the best of all the Irish Times. So th- th- there's there's still quite a lot of attention in the broadsheets, but I think attention has shifted from, from, the, uh, from the papers to events. So mm. there are festivals and you often sell books at festivals and there's so much more poetry being written and so much more poetry being published that events mm. make it possible mm. for you to meet and, and listen to 10 or 12 poets or some of the poetry yeah. festivals. Really. It Stanzas is one of the great festivals. Stanzas is really mm. fine. And of course uh, mm. Ledbury down here we have. Um, Ledbury really taken the, taken the palm quite, quite emphatically. Cheltenham used to have a wonderful festival. It seems to me that Alderborough is re- reconstructing its festival. When poetry is part of a larger literature festival, you generally find that the, the larger literature festival wins out because it's easier to get audiences, famous novelists or newsreaders, uh, than it is for poets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Do large bookshops stock poetry, or is it just the little indie bookshops that are supportive? And what about online outlets?
1: There was one big chain, which is David Smith, which had very little poetry, but they also had a big literature prize. So we were able, at one stage to sell over forty thousand copies of Elizabeth Jennings' original collected poems through David Smith because she won the David Smith Award. Forty thousand copies—that's a lot of books. It's as many as some publishers sell a year. So it's—you know—we were quite um, lucky. In those days, for example, Blackwell's in Oxford. Blackwell's was centered in Oxford. So Basil Blackwell was a very nice approachable man. I had tea with him. He, he suggested that I should put the rack in his main shop in Broad Street. So buy <laughs> pamphlets. And uh, you had access to everyone like that. Even later on when Tim Waterstone was setting up Waterstone's booksellers, he spent a lot of time in Manchester where one of his main branches was established. We became good friends. He was very supportive and made sure that all the Waterstone's bookshops had substantial poetry shelves. Later on, of course, Waterstones realized that poetry didn't turn over quite as fast as some of the other things, and so it reduced its poetry representation. Some Waterstones, like Waterstones in Amsterdam, remain major shops for poetry, because the buyer has proven that he can, with intelligent buying and events, Uh, so lots and lots of poetry. The the major shops for us at the moment are probably places where the single best poetry bookshop in the United Kingdom at the moment is the London Review of Books bookshop mm. in London, just near the... the, the, the yes, they're uh, very good, they one wonderful place. events. They have lovely events, but they also have they have about three or four bays and they have a very brilliant poetry buyer in the form of John Clegg. That's what you need, is somebody who's passionate oh, about poetry. Yeah. And I think it follows that if you have a passionate poetry buyer who talks about the poems and pushes them, you have a, a quite you have chance of having a very strong... Uh, Poetry section, but in the old days we could we could always depend on selling into the smaller chains and so on. Now it's very very hard to, to penetrate uh, Waterstones. The independents, of course, are wonderful, but there's so again so much product, so much poetry product is yeah. seeking so little shelf space that it's very very hard. But some of the wholesalers are very responsive. The the big other problem nowadays is with the death of the is the Net Book Agreement, which said that. Everyone had to be able to uh, acquire books at the same discount. But nowadays, 70, for example, yes. a, a very big bookseller can say to you, "We will not carry your books unless you give us fifty-five percent discount." Yeah. There's a lot of discount. It it <laughs> the poor um, author as well because the the author's royalty is halved when it when the discount goes over fifty percent. There is tremendous pressure from the retailers uh, on the publisher, the publishers themselves. We do find that. Amazon is a, a wonderfully uh, neutral selling ground. All of our books are available on Amazon, and anybody who wants to buy a cocktail book can find them there. We tend to, to curse Amazon for various reasons, but uh, one thing is true, it's probably a quarter of our turnover. So, and of course, during COVID, it's uh, possibly more than a quarter of
0: George Steiner, the, the great Franco-American literary critic, essayist, philosopher, novelist, and educator who wrote extensively about the relationship between language, literature, and society. Tell us about your friendship, because he, he, recommend, he, he recommended books to you. He, he was a friend. He was the mentor. I mean, what, what was he like?
1: George Steiner started uh, contributing to PN Review, um, the magazine that I run. Uh, yeah. And PN Review is, I think, the thing that I love most in the world, apart from you. My grandchildren, of course. He started writing for the Review Major essays about uh, about literature. He he wasn't that attentive a reader of poetry. He was more of a, I think he was more interested in in the resistance of poetry, if you like, poetry resistance of power, resistance of pain, resistance of other things. He was a very good reader, and he was a very great reader of uh, the classics, and he brought that same kind of intelligence to bear on the things that he read in the, in, the, in the present. I think history weighed very heavily on him in a, in a way that made him read read things into context rather than away from context. He was he was very scary in a sense, very delightful, very very intelligent, and always keen to engage. He was always good at being argumentative, so he was, <laughs> was quite a, a tonic. And the last time I met him, unfortunately, I, he, he mentioned a, a set of lectures that he'd delivered and that hadn't been published. I said, "Oh, we should send them to Carconet and let me consider them, and he said, I did send them to you, you rejected them. No mm-hmm. recollection of doing this, but I, I felt particularly, sort of, mm-hmm. sad at myself, really.
0: Poetry is your, your thing, but tell us a little bit all the same. You you have published other prose. You At one point, you published quite a lot of fiction, and quite a lot of fiction yes. in translation, and you pulled back from that.
1: Yes, I had a very good uh, fiction reader, Michael Freeman, mm-hmm. and he decided that we should publish not only new fiction. We did a few a few first novels. Uh, Sebastian Berry was one of our first novels. Um, we did uh, Orhan Pamuk's first novel. But there were also these rather large figures like, like Christine Bookrose who were not being published. And her experimental fiction is fascinating It fits right into our interest in, in language and, and, uh, and experiment. And so he brought her books into play. We discovered that... The work of Laura Riding had not been republished, and Laura Riding was still alive, and so we worked closely with her on republishing her her body of work. And so there was uh, quite a lot of quite a lot of fiction that we did, uh, translated fiction. We had a wonderful uh, relationship with Stuart Hood.
0: Stuart was quite a character. He was involved in the war in Italy in the hills with the partisans. Right. Il partigiano Johnny.
1: He pressed us in various interesting directions. So we published Vino <laughs> Buzzati at his beque- behest, I think it was in his behest. We mm-hmm. published Natalia Ginsburg's novels and Shasha, almost all of Shasha. And we we did a lot of first translations from from the Italian. We did Roberto Calasso. Mm-hmm. We did um, also did a, a major Portuguese list and a lot of German novels. We did uh, Michael Hoffman's father, uh, we did uh, Gert Hoffman's novels. And we, we did a lot of German fiction. Again, helped there by Michael Hamburger, who was a great uh, reader of, of German. He was one of our main ah, advisors at yes. the time. Ah, and so, yes, the, the, the fiction list was a huge uh, success and we got lots of reviews. Um, I think our success led to other people taking up translated fiction. This the 80s and early 90s, I guess. We could no longer afford it. The advances we were paying almost nothing for uh, for work, and uh, gradually yeah. it became more and more expensive.
0: Now, to come to Manuel Vilas, yes. author of Heaven that you've just published, right. translated by James Womack. So it's sort of two in one because it's also calor heat, originally from Barbastro in the Huesca 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 region. Manuel Vilas, who is one of Spain's biggest selling authors, what what is his magic? what is his magic ingredient, what makes him quite so special. And though he's very local, he's also very universal. You
1: know, the magazine is my main uh, sort of drag met. Things reach me through the magazine. If I like them in the magazine, I then develop them into with the author, into, into, translated into books. Mm-hmm. James Womack sent me a couple of these translations which were, I thought, side-splittingly funny. They were very, very funny. There was a lot of sex in them, quite a lot of... Uh, the the narrator's tone was very familiar and uh, full of self knowledge, but also a certain kind of self loathing as well. It, it, <laughs> it was a very, very familiar, not only an English ironist, but something much more sort of European and unapologetic. And I, I loved I loved it. And and James somehow caught the tone precisely. I, I asked to see more and more, and then the the book happened. He won the. We did it one year. We did the PN Review Translation Prize, and, and James won the prize with with a I mean, vila is, is extremely intelligent i think that's what's so wonderful about him he's very intelligent and at the same time very much in his body and it's a body which likes sex and it likes it it, it knows it's going to be disappointed as well so there's this wonderful combination of, of of the of the of the high and the i wouldn't say the low the base Let's call it. it's uh, visceral <laughs> visceral yes he's he, it's like the it's like the consul in in in, uh, in in under the volcano, but with a little bit more sense of humour. The one thing you can do with translation is if you can bring the author to England for the festivals, yeah. that can help a lot. It's quite expensive to that do that, help, and um, yeah. uh, and the festivals aren't always interested in, in an unknown Spanish poet. But uh,
0: Spanish would they not be interested in bringing him over because he yes, he, yes. he has a certain profile? He's so anyway. This would, have,
1: this would have probably been his season had we not had COVID.
0: Tell us, because that tell us a bit about PN Review. Then, how often is it published? Mm-hmm. But for the listeners, you know, who might maybe be interested in checking out PN Review.
1: Okay, PN, PN Review it. began began as a twice yearly hardback anthology of poetry and and prose criticism. And uh, when I moved to Manchester, it became uh, quarterly. I, I set up an editorial board which included Professor Brian Cox. Donald Davy, who was a poet that I, whose work I admire tremendously, both as a critic and as a poet, and my very favourite poet that we've ever published, C. H. Sisson. And Sisson was uh, an old civil servant, so um, and uh, a great, a, a wonderful classicist, a Latin classicist, not a Greek classicist, and tremendously into French literature and German literature. He was a, a tr- wonderfully erudite in a in an open, not in a kind of excluding sense. He was just he was my education. Uh, they joined me on the editorial panel. And we published, this is when I think Steiner joined us, probably because of Donald Davies' presence there. So it it was quite a lively magazine as a quarterly, uh, always taking up positions uh, against Stan magazine, against this, against that, um, <laughs> supporting the Book of Common Prayer and the King James Bible against the Church of England, uh, and so on. And so um, it, it grew. And then I, at a certain point, I decided it was exhausting to have three other editors on on. So this, the the uh, the board, as it were. <laughs> I decided to yeah. celebrate them each with a with a, a special issue, and uh, to ask them to, to invite them to retire, so that I could do a special issue about them. We we then started publishing every two months, and for the last uh, for the last um, I guess forty years, we've been publishing six times a year. We just published our 250th issue, um, and. What I love about it is that it is able to respond to things. So if I get if I have a new enthusiasm, mm. I don't have to wait a year before it appears in the book, and I'm tired of it. Yeah. I can no. I can publish while while I'm still quite hot with excitement. And, and also, if you're having a fight with somebody, or if you want to settle a score, you always have your editorial to do it with. Yeah. Or if you're trying to celebrate somebody, you know, or, or or welcome a new arrival on the block, a new publisher, a new magazine, or whatever. And so it's a it's a wonderfully responsive tool, but also a place where you could... You know, you can follow your own lights.
0: There's quite often one reads, there are sort of wonderful spats. Well, yes. it's perhaps not the right word. But Recently, actually, it's one of your poets you've just released, what is it, Red Dress?
1: Rebecca, Rebecca what? No, it was, anyway, doing, it, was to do, it was to do with Instagram poetry and the way in which Instagram poetry, Instagram uh, was, poetry. Uh, was gaining ground and was actually, uh, and now, of course, with people like Rupi Kaur has taken, taken over all the poetry tables. So I think a lot of younger writers will imitate the kind of easy uh, self-revelation and, and response of, of that, uh, that kind of poetry.
0: So, who would be in your dream book club?
1: You mean which people?
0: Writers? Which people? Which which writers? All arguing or loving, <laughs> arguing with each other, loving each other's books—poetry, fiction. I, I think yeah. uh,
1: from, from my book club, I would like people to be reading not the re- most recent books, but books that have perhaps been overlooked for a while. Uh, in other words, being not too retrospective, but retrospective enough to, to pick up some of the things that really do inform our culture and that, uh, and that are neglected. So, for example, if you have a rediscovery, like the rediscovered uh, Graham, let's rediscover Graham, but let's also rediscover and Singer. Let's also rediscover George Barker. Let's also rediscover mm. David Wright. Let's rediscover the poets that were around Graham that made Graham possible, and that some of whom, of course, are as great as or even greater than Graham. Again, if, if look look back to look back to Auden and look at the other 30s poets, you know, and let's have a slightly richer sense of the past because I think our sense of the past is very spotty, is very antholo- yeah. anthological. And our sense of the present is very much uh, starstruck by, ah, here comes another here comes another poet who's won a big prize. They must be good. Uh, it doesn't yeah. mean that they are necessarily good. It means that they have actually touched the right buttons. Uh, so I think book clubs tend to be so fascinated, the, the ones that I, I have tried to join and have tried to stay with but haven't very successfully, tend to be very uh, keen on the present. And I, I, if there was a little bit more of the yeah. past mixed in the present, it would be a richer a richer mix. We love people who are hungry to read rather than people who know it all already so it's, it's fun to oh, yes. making discoveries
0: <laughs> what are some of your leading women poets past and present who you well, like to we, flag yeah. up We
1: have a, a, we have over the over time developed a more and more uh, astonishing list of women poets. I think now probably 35 or 40 percent of our poets are women and probably 70 percent of our sales come from those poets. The first major woman poet, or major in terms of sales, woman poet that we picked, that, that joined our list, was Elizabeth Jennings. And she uh, she has gone on selling right. for ever since. Uh, among the Americans, obviously, we have quite a, a strong list with Louise Gluck and Jory Graham, and uh, and uh, a, a tremendous number of, of really good good American writers. Among the Irish, we have a very strong list, with, uh, led by Evan Boland, uh, including uh, Martina Evans, uh, and, well, there are, there are lots. Um, and our, our British list includes, of course, Sinead Morrissey, uh and uh, Tara Berg. And, and it's slightly invidious to mention some and not to mention others. Uh, Sasha Dugdale. We we have a lot of younger women. Uh, Jane Yeh. I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a wonderfully varied list. No, what I love about Carcanet is that there's no school uh, of Carcanet it's male, female, gay, or otherwise. Um, each poet seems to, to, to navigate by their own by their own stars. Yeah. So you can't really reduce it to a, a, a sort of formula. It's not a kind of movement. It's, uh, it's something much, much different. It's a galaxy. Yeah. And in translation as well, of course.
0: To find out more about Carconet Press and its books, visit website www.carcanet.co.uk. Their Twitter feed is at Carcanet. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, and to publisher Michael Schmidt for taking the time to be interviewed. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Bookblast podcast.